0: It is another opportunity that we have this evening and how thankful we certainly are that we can come together to assemble in the name of the God of heaven, to do so with an appreciation of all the blessings and all the wonders of the first day of the week. It is, of course, that special day on which our Savior arose. It's that day in which the first century church assembled around the Lord's table, the day that they gave as they'd been prospered. It maintained for them a specialness and a character that reverberates in your mind and in mine even these many centuries later. It is the case that as we've noted in our study so far through the Sunday evenings as well as the Sunday mornings, we've been appreciating the fact that as we read through the Scriptures this year, we've now completed some 122 chapters. That is a bit over 10% the fullness of the Word of God. And in so doing, we've read in Genesis and in Job and to this point also in Matthew in the New Testament. It is the case, though, we've just begun the book of Exodus, and so you might anticipate at least one of the lessons next Sunday will be extracted from the book of Exodus. Might we suggest at this point the lesson tonight surrounding the consideration of a very special gentleman in the Sacred Scriptures, Joseph, will be much of our topic of consideration this evening. Joseph, I'm sure, brings to your mind and mine so many interesting thoughts from our days, perhaps in Sunday school classes, from the occasions of our study about such a special young man that he was, maybe with all those things in mind. Perhaps a foretaste of the lesson tonight, the control of God, how that He is able to bring events in the lives of individuals to where it brings about that which is His will, Although at times individuals are unaware of it, although at times, in fact, it may appear inconvenient and even uncomfortable, yet we find in the life of Joseph an incredible statement and study about the very nature of God's providence and the very nature of that which truly brings about His ultimate will. Some of the things about this kind of lesson can, in fact, be a little on the shocking side, a troubling aspect, if you will, But I hope you'll notice that as you and I strive to look for the fingerprints of God about us in our lives and those of others, may we always remember that in 1 Corinthians 1, 29, we're reminded that no flesh should glory in the presence of God. You and I shall never have His wisdom in the sense of being able to figure out all that there is about Him. He's infinite, and His ways are far greater than ours, Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. But I do think that there are some marvelous lessons to appreciate and we shall do that this evening. As we do that, let's begin in the following fashion, if you would, with me. Let's recount, as we often find so helpful, a few of the statements of the powerful episodes of the life of Joseph. And following that, we shall look more carefully at some of those lessons that might be of help to us. Jacob, of course we will remember, was the grandson of Abraham. He was an individual who himself occupied one of those patriarchal roles in the Old Testament book of Genesis. As we well remember, Jacob, of course, a mighty man himself, and he was blessed with 13 children, 12 boys and one girl. And as we recollect the birth of that, of that group of children, we well remember that out of all of them, one of them was his favorite, Joseph the eldest child of his beloved Rachel. She was such that, of course, he looked upon her, he wept over her, he kissed her and lifted up his voice. And we well remember that that love, of course, brought in so many other things due to the evil deception of her father, whose name was Laban. As we have read in that book of Genesis so far, we do come to appreciate that of all those children... Joseph, again, was Jacob's favorite. And that favoritism led to a great number of issues and problems, and I've tried to highlight some of them with the explicit statements of the Bible. You'll notice the text in Genesis chapter 37 expressly says that his brothers hated him. They saw the way that Jacob made a coat of many colors for Joseph And in the King James Version, that phrase, coat of many colors, literally means a long shirt-like tunic. This was perhaps a garment that quite often would have been worn by those in high position, by those who really were considered very special. But you see, Jacob didn't give any of his other children one of those coats. As his brothers hated him for that favoritism, You'll notice it says they were even unable to speak peaceably unto him. They envied him. That kind of behavior led to the later events of Genesis 37. It is on that occasion that we see that Jacob sent Joseph on one occasion to see about the brothers and how that they were doing in tending the flock. He finally found them at Dothan and as he came they espied him from a distance. And in so doing, they immediately concocted a scheme whereby they could do away with him. In fact, the thought was even to kill him, to put him to death, and of course, to use that coat that they removed from him to convince their father that in fact something had befallen him. Reuben did save his life and persuaded them to cast him into a pit But later, when Reuben came back to remove him from the pit, they had already sold him, and so here was their own flesh and blood, their brother that had been sold to a band of Midianites, and they ultimately took him on into Egypt and sold him there. Joseph, a youth of the age of seventeen, was now far removed from his father, far removed from the homeland that he had known and loved, far removed from that place wherein he could appreciate the great blessings of God toward that family. Now in the nation of Egypt, he found himself in the household of a gentleman named Potiphar. While there, you and I remember two chapters later in Genesis 39, that Potiphar's wife cast her eyes toward him and she wasn't just interested in him doing the gardening. She had an interest in him being more along the lines of a fornicator. And we well remember that Joseph would have done of it. In fact, as she laid her hands and attempting to, in fact, beseech him to do that which was not his interest, the, his clothes were left with him and he fled, he ran. She told a lie with respect to him and ultimately Potiphar had him, Joseph, cast into prison Here was a young man who now found himself in dire straits indeed, in a foreign land, in a prison, if you will. But the text is very clear to remind us not once, not twice, but three times in Genesis 39 that the Lord was with him. He rose to prominence even in the prison. He was given charge of the other prisoners, if you will. And we notice he was even given the ability to interpret dreams. Several occasions in this book of Genesis, Joseph interpreted dreams. First of all, is mentioned to us the interpretation of those dreams of both the butler and the baker of the Pharaoh. He well appreciated the fact that the baker would in fact be his life would be taken from him, but the butler would be restored to his service, and that's exactly what happened. Two years passed. Ultimately the Pharaoh was blessed with dreams by God. He dreamed, you may remember, about cattle and about ears of corn. And in each instance, there were seven very plentiful things, but followed by seven very loathsome and very sorrowful things, thin things. As those interpretations came before Joseph, he ultimately revealed to the Pharaoh that that represented seven years. Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of leanness. At that point, Joseph was elevated to the great stature that he was in Egypt. The Pharaoh gave him control of everything to make ready for the seven years that were to be of the the lean years. And with all of that, you and I will appreciate the greatness of of all those events really overshadows the last several chapters of Genesis. For there Jacob and his family ultimately are brought into Egypt and there they survive the years of famine and there they are blessed as God watches over them in Goshen and there they are ready to be preserved so that the greatness of the Savior could ultimately come through that family. It may well be as you come near the close of that. We're reminded though that there was something that very troublingly rested upon the mind of the brothers They remembered what they had done to Joseph and they remembered selling him the way that they did. And they even appreciated that when Joseph revealed himself to them, they were bothered that he would take vengeance upon them. And several years later when their father died, when Jacob passed away, they were fearful again that Joseph would take vengeance upon them, that he would retaliate. That summary of the last 13 chapters of Genesis perhaps brings us to close that particular slide and to open the next one in the following way. As we do all of that, that stirring scene brings us then to a slide that I've entitled About Luck. I'd invite you to think with me for at least the next little while about the subject, the topic of luck. L-U-C-K. Luck is an interesting thing. You'll notice that in passing I tried to mention a number of avenues, a number of happenings in the life of Joseph. I'd ask you to think with me for a moment. There were many of them that would no doubt be reckoned as bad. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery. While there, he just happened to end up in Potiphar's family and Potiphar's wife just happened to cast her eyes toward him. You'll notice even later, interesting features surrounding even what came to pass while he was the second in command in the land of Egypt. All the while, at the top of that slide, many of those events certainly again would be reckoned and some today might ask, were they just due to bad luck? Was it just bad luck he ended up in Potiphar's house? He could have ended up anywhere. Was it bad luck that it just happened to be the case that his brothers looked upon him the way that they did? Was it just bad luck that Reuben just couldn't get back in time to release him before they sold him? A lot of bad luck, if I might use that phrase. But on the other hand, there was quite a bit of good things attached to Joseph, wasn't there? While in the prison, although it probably wasn't a very nice place, or at least the nicest, he rose to prominence and became a rather influential person. Sometime later, we remember he had the privilege of preserving his family there in the land of Goshen. Was all of that just good luck? Or was there something else? You'll notice on that slide before you, I would ask you to notice the way that Webster's Dictionary, Merriam-Webster's, I should say, how it defines this word you and I use and sometimes consider as the word luck. That definition reads, luck is defined as the things that happen to a person because of chance, the accidental way things happen without being planned. And it is in that regard I would ask you to, to ponder with me for the remainder of the lesson basically about this subject of luck. Sometimes I'm persuaded that that concept is used completely erroneously. And many times matters are chalked up if you please to luck when luck doesn't have anything to do with it. When luck quite frankly is a very different animal or beast if we may so say. Let's explain what we mean using Joseph as a prime example from the book of Genesis. There at the bottom of that slide, those matters that you and I have listed previously, where it is, the way in which he was sold, the specific features of the timing, if that had been only a few moments different, Reuben might have been able to return and to remove him or release him before the brothers had an opportunity to sell him. If he had made it into Egypt just slightly differently in time, maybe some other gentleman would have bought him and not Potiphar. Was it just bad luck? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, there are some statements that are made in the Scriptures. It's the very text that Brother Wendell read earlier that really are a beautiful matter and challenge. Please revisit with me Genesis 45, verses 5, 6, and 7. Let's listen to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us about the attribute of the very thing that we're considering tonight. This was on that occasion when Joseph was making himself known to his his brothers. They had come to Egypt on a time or two, and Joseph had made sure they had provision, but they had never known who he was. In fact, he had put their money back in their sacks, and they were greatly bothered when they discovered the money there. Now we read in verses 5, 6, and 7. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance." At the bottom of that slide, you'll notice that Joseph harbored nothing that you and I would call luck. God's fingerprints were all over these events. Did you notice that twice, Joseph said, God sent me before you. He was the one that orchestrated these events that I might preserve a posterity, a remnant, if you will, through these years of this difficult and troubling famine. In verse number 5, he said it like this, God did send me before you to preserve life. Isn't it amazing in light of comments like that? It certainly helps us appreciate that maybe some additional thoughts would entirely be in order. Did you notice that Joseph said the brothers intended it for evil. They themselves had evil in mind. He did not in any way say that what they did in selling him was good. But he did very clearly say that God brought about the utter continuance of those events in a way that was in correspondence to His will and in a way that did bring about ultimately the sovereignty of His will to preserve the seed of Abraham through Jacob, to preserve that seed, to preserve that remnant, and to spare their lives. For those reasons, the comments at the top maybe cause us to think twice Before we speak about luck in the way that sometimes is so often done, those events that happen in my life or yours. Are we sure that that merely is no more than just chance or luck? Could it be that there really is a deeper and more persuasive occurrence? Could it be that the God of heaven is orchestrating the events of space and time in such a way to bring about what finally is His will? I admit, as you and I reflect upon Joseph, for years he wasn't able to see it. Being sold in the way that he was, being able to interpret the dreams, he surely was aware of God's blessing upon him, being able to interpret those dreams. But at that point, in the position that he was, what influence did he have? Not until that time when ultimately he appeared before Pharaoh, 13 years after his brothers sold him, You'll notice that Joseph had aged from 17 to 30, and then, and only then did he appear before the Pharaoh, and then he was able ultimately to make statements that he made to these brothers sometime later. That's really a mind-boggling consideration, isn't it? To think that God orchestrated those events to bring about that which really was his ultimate will. Did Joseph know that he was an instrument in the hands of God all the time of those 13 years? Probably not. Are you and I always aware of that which God is doing in our lives? I'm not by any means saying that God will work miracles. We know that age has passed. But can God orchestrate in the natural affairs of time to bring about His will? Sure He can. You and I recognize that Joseph is only one example of a number of others in the Scriptures for whom similar things might be said. Consider Nehemiah with me for just a moment. Quite a bit later in the Old Testament, centuries have now passed since the days of Joseph. But we know that there was a gentleman named Nehemiah. He found himself in a rather noteworthy position as the cupbearer to the king. We read of that, of course, in the opening chapter of Nehemiah. And on that occasion, here he was, saddened in disposition. You may recall the king on one occasion witnessing the countenance of Nehemiah. asked him, why is thy countenance sad? It is often the case, isn't it, that if something's bothering us or troubling us, it shows on our face. Our spouse can tell it. Sometimes those with whom we work are able to tell something is bothering him or her. And so it was in the life of Nehemiah. The king asked, Why is thy countenance so? And Nehemiah told him, How can I be happy when the city of my forefathers lieth waste? That particular observation and that particular conversation set in course, set in action, a set of events that ultimately would lead to Nehemiah being granted the opportunity to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that he did. But I would ask that you notice a number of times in the book of Nehemiah how that Nehemiah said, The hand of the Lord was with me. He seemingly was well aware of the fact he lived in the confines of the providential activity of the God of heaven. The things he did were not accidental and they were not luck. They happened because the God of heaven willed it to be so and that which took place was to redound into the glory of God. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? All the events that we see in the life of Nehemiah, I selected a few. In Nehemiah 4.15, on that occasion, Nehemiah happened to come across a piece of information. I say happened. Nehemiah didn't chalk it up to look. He appreciated that information was being shared with him in such a way that it could lead to the occurrence and the fulfillment of the will and plan of God. That's amazing. That's genuinely amazing. As you and I reflect upon our lives day by day, could it be that God brings people into our lives or events that take place in such a way that it's not just luck, it's not just chance, but there is an ultimate benefit for someone somewhere. And at the moment, you or I may not know who or what it is. But if we're faithful to the Lord, it shall redound finally into His glory, and it shall bring about that which is His will." That's what happened so far, both in the life of Nehemiah and in the life of Joseph. You'll notice in light of that last comment, isn't it true that Daniel 4.25, time will fail us tonight to look at Daniel. We may save that one until much later in the year when we get to the book of Daniel. But in those 12 chapters of the book of Daniel, how often did he seemingly be well aware of the fact that he too was living in the providential care of the God of heaven? He said, in fact, three times in Daniel 4, that's God that rules in the kingdoms of men. It might be in light of those that, no doubt, one of the prime lessons and the prime characters in all the Bible surely must be the book of Esther. We will remember in the ten chapters of the book of Esther, what an amazing set of ideas for which we see some interesting things that point us squarely to the God of heaven. I've always found it interesting, and I'm sure you do as well, that the book of Esther is a book, oddly enough, in which the name of God does not occur in it anywhere. Isn't that unusual? But yet one can see the work of God behind the scenes in every chapter. You remember how it goes with me. Vashti starts the book as the queen upon the throne. Her husband, Ahasuerus, called her to dance before him in the group, and she refused to do it. She would not come and present herself. She was deposed as queen, and we will remember Esther was her replacement. Was it just good luck that Esther happened to be on the throne at the time that Haman concocted the plot that he did to destroy the Jews? That would be far-fetched to believe. She was on the throne, and Mordecai knew it because she was in a position to save them, and it was the plan of God that she could do so. Mordecai, in fact, even said to her in chapter 4, near the close of that chapter. Interestingly, in Esther 4.14, the statement is made, perhaps thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this. You are in position, Esther, and the only one that's in that position. If you are faithful to the God of heaven, He has brought you to this time that you might deliver the very people that is you and I. She went into the king. He spared her life. She, in fact, was such that ultimately a beautiful plan was concocted and Haman was hanged on the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. That just isn't luck and it wasn't just accidental. That was the work of God, wasn't it? As you think about Esther, we've now seen three examples. On the one hand was Joseph. On another hand was Nehemiah. Thirdly was Esther. And every one of them lived in such a way that God used them in the activities of the days of their lives. So far, we haven't appreciated much about just happenstance or luck in their lives, have we? Maybe there's one more example. As we turn our attention to the New Testament, it's entirely intriguing that there is buried in the very heart of the New Testament yet one more occurrence that seemingly leaps off the page by the words of the inspired writer Paul. It's the little one-chapter book of Philemon. We remember that Onesimus was a slave who, of course, had served in the household of Philemon, but Onesimus had run away. And the answer, the reason as to his running away, isn't told to you and me. We don't know what had occurred between he and Philemon. That information is forever withheld from us. But we are told this. In verse 15, after Paul and he had developed a relationship and Paul had converted him to Christ, Paul wrote this letter we call Philemon, sent it back by the hand of Onesimus. And in so doing, Paul had these words to say, He left as a slave, but perhaps he left because now he can come back as a brother. Paul seemingly appreciated the hand of God at work. Even in the events that had now occurred in the life of Onesimus, he is able to come back a saved man. He's not just a slave anymore. He's your brother in Christ, Philemon. Treat him that way. Paul seemingly saw the work of God even in a circumstance like that one. You and I would be then quick to come to the bottom of that slide. It is true the inspired writer Solomon could say in Ecclesiastes 9 that time and chance happen to to them all. But we've learned tonight already that in the lives of these four Bible characters, many things that otherwise might have been attributed to luck was not luck at all. It was the hand of an omnipotent, awesome, amazing God of heaven orchestrating providentially the affairs and the lives of people to bring about opportunities that they could serve Him. I would use those thoughts as we come near the close of this lesson to challenge all of us to not be quick to use the word luck very often. Luck is not something you see seemingly that harmonizes well with what we've studied. God is at work in the lives of those who love Him and often in the lives of those who don't. Nebuchadnezzar would have been another example we could have used. He obviously, at many times in his life, had no interest in God, no interest in the things of heaven, and yet God used him. In Daniel chapters 3 and 4, we find that particular event, God using a man in order to bring about His will, though that man had no idea what was happening. Another one would be Cyrus, Here was another gentleman in the Old Testament era who in fact God specifically named him over 200 years before he was born. And God said, He's my servant. And yet he was a king of a foreign nation. A king of one who had no association to the Israelite nation per se. But he was a token in the hand of a mighty God. Are you and I tokens in the hand of a mighty God? Do we allow ourselves to be used by Him? Or do we use comments like luck and forget there's ever a God out there? If we are so quick to attribute things to bad luck or good luck, we often overlook the greatness of what God can do. I wonder how often Joseph reflected on some of these matters. It would seem he learned a valiant lesson, didn't he? I would ask that you turn to Genesis chapter 50 as we come near the close of our lesson and look at one more statement that Joseph made. Genesis chapter 50, the closing book, closing chapter of that book. This was the occasion after Jacob had died, and the brothers were again fearful of what Joseph might do. Joseph put it in words like this. Verse number 18, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. They were so sure that he would take vengeance upon them because so many years earlier they had sold him. Now, verse number 19, Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for me, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive." I'm sure that you have known of circumstances, and maybe they've even happened in your life. Maybe others have told you stories or events that have transpired in their life. A gentleman could say, he spoke or invited someone to come to church services. If you ever get a chance to speak with Brother Bill Martin, let him tell you about this. It has happened in his life. Speaking with someone, and they accept the invitation, they obey the gospel, and countless thousands have been converted to Christ because... Someone issued an invitation, and someone agreed to accept it. That wasn't just happenstance, and it wasn't just luck. That was someone doing the work of God, and the work of God ultimately was done in such a way that many, many were benefited and blessed because of it. I hope each of us allow our lives to be used in the hand of God and to recognize that as He is able to bring things about, as He did in Nehemiah and Joseph and Esther and Philemon, and as He did in the lives of Onesimus and Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar and others, that we too can be powerful examples and powerful instruments and ministers for God's good and His work. The summary statements of this particular lesson, it seems, could easily be said to be no more than this. The providence of God is at work. I know that you and I believe in God's providence. I know that we trust in it. But as we do so, let's allow luck to be a phrase or term that we don't often use or that we refuse to turn to because as we've seen tonight... Those instances that many others might believe are luck, you and I know it might be much more than that. And it might be much profounder and much deeper with eternal significance behind it. This very night, it might be there's someone in this audience that's not a member of the body of Christ. Maybe to this point, you've considered many things in life or just luck, but tonight you're here. And that's not just luck. You're here at a time and a place And the very thought on your mind might be a need to respond. Don't let the moment pass. Don't let the issue pass you by this very night, for you may never again be this close to the kingdom of heaven. I'd submit to you the plan of salvation does, though, demand that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, that you repent of your sins, you confess His name in the hearing of others as the Son of God and be baptized. If this very evening we could be assistants in your obedience to that gospel, let us do it. If you have begun that walk with the Master, but you no longer are faithful, things have transpired in your life and you're ashamed of it. You realize that that shame should lead you to act. It should lead you to come back to the love you've now lost. Why not do it? We would pray for you, we would pray with you, and we'd be honored to beseech God on your behalf that He'd forgive you. He'll reinstate you to a position that you again could appreciate that providence of God, and in so doing, you could perhaps influence multitudes in dramatic ways to be servants of the God of heaven. Tonight, as we close this lesson, let's then not rely on luck but rely on God's providence. And tonight, if we could help anybody in your response to the truth, why not do it? while together we stand in sing.